0: the new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix-design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit Audi.ca to learn more. The Canadian government has proposed spending billions of dollars to fight climate change. Will it be enough? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, my guest is Yale economist William Nordhaus. In 2018, Nordhaus won the Nobel Memorial Prize for his work integrating macroeconomic analysis with the long-run impact of climate change. In a new book called The Spirit of Green, Nordhaus examines the economics of climate change and what markets can and cannot address. He also talked with me about Canada's carbon tax and what the costs and rewards of stopping climate change are. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Bill Nordhaus, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here.
0: Your new book is called The Spirit of Green. And in the introduction, you wrote that you hope to address the challenges and unintended side effects of globalization and economic growth. Can you maybe give me a brief synopsis of what you mean by the spirit of green and what this book encompasses
1: Yeah so the main thrust of the book is that as we become more globalized we're living in larger cities larger and larger cities um more of us are living in cities uh that we're bumping into each other more often we're having more collisions and we're having more contagions and so what this book does is try to understand how we can deal with them one of the themes of the book is markets don't deal with them effectively. These are spillovers from markets and other activities. And so we need collective action to working perhaps through markets as well to really resolve these in an effective way. So the spirit of green is to deal with these collective problems that arise because of economic growth and ones that cannot be effectively handled by markets alone.
0: Yeah. Some of the ideas about what markets can and can't address That idea in particular, I think, is subject to intense debate right now because in the US, President Biden is proposing to invest hundreds of billions of dollars to help transition away from fossil fuels. And something similar is happening here in Canada. Can you describe your view about the sort of interventions that we're seeing right now from governments around the world?
1: Well, if we take climate change as a key example, the first thing we have to recognize is these will not be solved by markets acting on their own because penalty or price of emitting CO2 into the atmosphere is zero. And therefore, rational economic actors, whether they're individuals acting on their own behalf or firms acting on their own profitability, will simply treat CO2 as a free good, like sand on the beach, and basically won't pay attention to it. So it's only through governments and collective action that we can solve that. The second point is how we solve it will make a big difference on whether we do it effectively and inexpensively or ineffectively and expensively. And I think Canada and the U.S. are interesting examples because Canada has used an important and new tool, which is carbon taxation, as a way of raising the price of CO2 and using that as the way to get people to reduce their emissions. Whereas the US has done very little, but the Biden administration is using a regulatory approach, a subsidy approach, which is basically ineffective and uses the wrong instruments and is extremely expensive, and so far has had very little impact on U.S. emissions. So it's interesting. The main thing I would say is you have to have collective action, or it will not be solved. But the key, and this is part of what the spirit of green is about, is how we choose the most effective instruments. So we can get to our goals in a lower cost and, you know, with a light governmental touch.
0: Yeah. Throughout the book, you rely on this economic term, which is externalities. I was wondering if you could maybe briefly explain for listeners who aren't familiar what, what externalities are and why they're important.
1: Yes. The, the book it really is a primarily about externalities, but a non-technical term would be a spillover effect or an unintended consequence. And the one we're probably most familiar with is pollution. For example, when a firm decides to get rid of its waste by pouring it into the river, it could be a toxic waste. So it could just be kind of a low-level acid or something like that, nothing particularly notable, but just something that uh, kills the plants or pollutes it. Or in the case of runoff from our lawns, when we fertilize our lawns, it leads to algae blooms in local water systems. These are are spillovers. They happen outside the marketplace. And they happen all the time. There's noise, there's congestion, there's pollution. And then there are the big ones. There's climate change, which is a very big one. And another very big one is pandemics, because those are also spillovers in the sense when we cough or we sing and we we don't wear a mask and we're an infected person and we're in a small space, uh, then we can infect other people. So all of these are they're failures of the pure market mechanism and the ones that need to be recognized. Governments around the world is recognized. These are not, they've been dealt with for many, many years. But what we need to do is recognize them. And some of the new ones, like the pandemic, which is not new, but we haven't dealt with very well in the last year, and climate change, which we've been very slow on, these are ones that we need to use the, the right tools and work together. So some of these we've been very effective, others we've been a lot less effective.
0: Yeah. You, you wrote in the book at one point that some of the earliest government policies to address externalities were efforts by government to protect public health from contagious diseases. Do you think that the fact that we're living right now through such a massive pandemic will change some of the attitudes in the US and Canada and other parts of the world towards collective action, whether it be on climate change or other externalities?
1: Well, I doubt it's going to have a huge and durable change in attitude. I think it will affect us maybe for a decade. But, you know, how many people remember the pandemic of 1918, 1920? I went back and looked at the history books of that period, and there was one, a very famous history book, and it devoted two pages to the deaths of World War I and two lines to the pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu, as it was called. And then noted that there were more people died in the pandemic than died in the war, so it's a kind of, interesting example of something that we lived through, but then we forgot. Huh.
0: Well, that doesn't sound like it bodes well. I mean, but you do write in the book that you know many of us know the term the invisible hand of the marketplace, which is the idea that markets allocate resources well. And you write that after two centuries, economists now realize the limits of this theory. Why do you think we're realizing the limits of this? And what are they? You know, why is this happening now?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's been a gradual evolution. If you go back 100 or 150 years, uh, I mean, after all, we were virtually everybody. We were li- first place. Many of us were living on farms, if not most of us. Uh, we weren't living in cities. Uh, there was less congestion. There was no road congestion to speak of. There was no airport congestion. And we, and our priorities were really to get food on the table, get shelter, get education, get people to be literate. So we're, we're living in a different age now, and, and the priorities may be different. The priorities might be to have a good environment, to have civil liberties, and to have the equality. So partly it's our priorities change. Partly it's that some of these problems have become or, either known or more severe, Um, I mean, many of the problems weren't really discovered and known for sure until 30, 40 years ago. So for example, the effects of the pollution through sulfur dioxide, these were controversial until the 1970s. Even even in the 1980s, people were arguing about what the effects of uh, sulfur dioxide pollution were. So a really good example of this is how we dealt with sulfur dioxide pollution or acid rain which is probably the most deadly of local air pollutants it kills 3 or 4 or 5 million people a year around the world it probably leads to 50,000 or more americans who are citizens of the united states probably a proportional number of canadians as well who die from air pollution as a result of that a key turning point was in 1990 when the us introduced its cap and trade system whereby it capped sulfur dioxide pollution, and it allowed firms to trade it, and there was a price on that. And after 1990, with the fiscal incentives of this price, of this cost of pollution, which firms could then bank on and really profit from, the pollution just died. It decrease in sulfur dioxide emissions just went down extremely sharply. And this is one of the reasons why economists feel so strongly that putting a price on CO2 is such an important, really critical, really necessary step in dealing with climate change.
0: Yeah. How long do you think it'll take before we begin to see the effects of the carbon price and the carbon tax in Canada? Because it's still relatively new here.
1: Well, let me say first that I think Europe was really the first to introduce carbon pricing through its emissions trading scheme dates back to the early 2000s. But I think Canada has really moved into the forefront in terms of carbon pricing with its tax and rebate plan, whereby it has a tax, but it rebates back to the population. And so this is something where people know there's a tax, but it know that it's going back. And I, and I think something like 80% of the Canadian people actually get more in rebates than they pay in the tax. So this is a plan that's got both environmental effectiveness and some kind of political glue to hold it together. Now, you ask, how long will this take? Well, it's not going to be overnight. I mean, there there are two forces at work here. One is that that firms like electrical generation firms will move away from carbon fuels to renewable fuels if they can just in terms of what they operate. But over the longer run, what this is going to do is lead to innovation in low-carbon technology. And this is really the critical element because we have a long way to go from where we are now to low-carbon low technology or zero-carbon technology. And the only way we're going to get there is through innovation. And innovation will be strongly stimulated if the price carbon price landscape is favorable to low-carbon technologies.
0: Yeah, I wanted to pull back for a minute. In 2018, you won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. I was wondering if it's possible to briefly explain some of the conclusions you've drawn through several decades of conducting research into environmental economics.
1: The award was made for computerized modeling of the economic and climate nexus. What that involved was taking all the major steps from economic growth, to emissions, to climate, to damages, to policy, and finding ways to put them into an integrated or single modeling effort so you could calculate the impact of, say, a ton of emissions on the the economic damages now and in the future. So if you ask, where did this idea of carbon tax or carbon price come from, it really came from these models which said, all right, if you want to limit your temperature to 2 degrees C or uh, so-and-so much uh, concentrations of carbon dioxide, what kind of price do you need to charge to the people? You can't can't charge a zero price because it's just going to go up and up and up. So what you need to do is you need to charge say, a price of $50 a ton or $100 a ton of CO2 if you're going to reach your goals. So actually that's where those numbers came from. And what they do is they basically... it's sort of like an undergraduate who takes a course in economics, takes a course in climate change, takes a course in agronomy, and then writes a paper on each of those courses and puts it together. But it took a little longer than that. It took a few years. It took many years to do that. But that's basically what it's about. And it was very surprising. I remember when I first uh, did this, and I saw this price-like thing come out, it. I scratched my head, and I said, what is this? And it took me a while to figure it out. Huh?
0: Some people talk about climate change and the cost it's going to impose on society. Other people say, well, there's a lot of opportunities here for investment. How do you view this debate and how do you characterize the challenge of climate change in economic
1: terms? Well, the first place is that when you say taking steps to slow emissions is costly, well, yes it is, of course, it's gonna cost something. But the problem is the way we measure our output whether it's our GDP or whatever, we exclude the benefits because our measures of output do not include health. They do not include mortality. They do not include sickness. Those benefits that would be gained from, say, air pollution, reducing air pollution or reducing CO2 pollution, those are simply not counted in our national accounts. So if we had a true set of national accounts, we would see that, in fact, these are increasing our income, not reducing our income. And the only reason that people say they're reducing it is because they don't take into account the fact that we don't have correct measures. And we don't have correct measures because we're not pricing things properly. We're not pricing CO2. And if we price CO2 properly, we would see, no, no, our true output is going up, not down when we correct for climate change. So that's the point I would like to emphasize. We're not lowering our income. We're raising our income because we're taking into account some of these other damages and impacts that are not included in our national economic accounts because of the very way they're constructed. We don't buy and sell lives on the market. We don't buy and sell health on the market. We only include things like bread and shoes and shelter, which is in the market.
0: Right. And that's that idea of externalities again.
1: Yes, exactly. Can I answer another question? Question? Yeah. Yes, please. The other main misconception is the impact on jobs. So the rhetoric of climate policy around the world is jobs, 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 and that's completely inaccurate. If we ask, will a strong climate program increase employment or unemployment over 5 or 10 or 20 years, the answer is, to a first approximation will have no impact. It's just incorrect to think that. The employment and unemployment are determined by monetary policies and other impacts. They're not determined by structural policies like environmental policies. It is true that where the jobs are will change. There will be fewer jobs in coal and more jobs in renewables. But the total number of jobs is basically unaffected by these policies.
0: And that's a very interesting way to look at it. Maybe I could ask you, too, then, whether the costs, all these costs of meeting our goals of limiting climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius will prove too great, or whether you have optimism?
1: I don't have an answer to that because I don't know what our technologies will look like. If we don't make strong progress on low-carbon technologies, particularly in the power sector, particularly in electrical generation, then we won't make 1.5 degrees. We're going to overshoot it, and we'll probably overshoot it pretty quickly because emissions are still going up, and we have no global climate policy. And the US has no climate, no serious climate policy yet in place. So I think the chances that we'll make the 1.5 degree limit are pretty slim at present. Uh, maybe even the 2 degrees are going to be difficult to make. But the real point is that what we need to do is do the best we can. And we need to do it in effective ways through carbon pricing and through support of renewable and low carbon technologies and do it quickly. And we need to do it in a way where countries act together in a harmonized fashion rather than a disorganized fashion. That's really, those are the things that are important. The three steps of carbon pricing around the world, support, government, strong government support for low carbon technologies and harmonization of uh, and collective action of the collectivity, so to speak, uh, government of gov- uh, governance of governments, those are things that are really important. And focusing on some goal of 1.5 or 2 or 3 or 1 or whatever it is, is really just a distraction from what we need to do to actually fix the problem and solve the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a, a very deep and nuanced discussion, and I really appreciate you joining me to talk
1: about these important issues. Okay, I would just like to say that we in the United States who are, care about this can be very proud of Canada. I think you've taken some of the most innovative steps in carbon pricing. I, I realize all the complications of the Canadian, well, I don't realize all of I realize many of the complications of the Canadian federal structure, but I think it's really uh, been a showcase for other countries. If I point to Canada as an example of a country that has found the, the formula, we don't know, of course, whether it will last forever, but it's found a formula for attacking in, a, in an aggressive way, in a way that appears to be politically acceptable uh, using important tools like carbon, carbon pricing. But I think Canada can be very proud of that.
0: Well, we'll have to try and talk about that in another show maybe, but I do appreciate you joining me today.
1: Okay, it was a great pleasure to talk to you and uh, hello to everyone who's listening.
0: That was William Nordhaus, Yale economist and author of The Spirit of Green. Thanks for listening and thanks to Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. If you want to support Down to Business, you can rate us wherever you listen to podcasts and you can share episodes with someone you know. I'm Gabe Friedman and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.